Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor John Rasmussen. into God's Word here, uh, Mark chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab one, open up to Mark chapter 6. Uh, we'll be looking at three verses in particular, the first three verses, as we see that Jesus is rejected in his own hometown. Let's just go ahead and take a look at those first three verses. It says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. You know, sometimes what is now famous was actually at one time rejected. Uh, I think that's true of a lot of things. For example, uh, as a middle school kid, uh, I learned all about Monet and Van Gogh uh, in my art class. Their paintings are worth millions of dollars now, but originally many of their works were rejected by art critics as trash. They basically said, this isn't art, Uh, but now we appreciate these works. Or, for example, the book Animal Farm by George Orwell. Uh, I had to read that in high school. Maybe you did too. Uh, It's a pretty popular book, but it was originally rejected because, according to one publisher, it is impossible to sell animal stories in the United States. Lion King hadn't come out yet, I guess. Or did you know that the wildly popular movie Back to the Future was rejected by both Disney and Columbia for a variety of reasons? And after the fact, I bet they wish they could go back to 1985 and say, yeah, sure, we'll do it. Uh, That's a bad joke, sorry. (laughs) Got to do that as a dad sometimes. So sometimes what is now famous was once rejected. And and we see that with Jesus, that Jesus is revered and adored and worshipped all throughout this globe today as we gather on the Lord's Day. Uh, But there was a time when Jesus went to his hometown And people rejected him. We see that today in Mark 6. So far in Mark's gospel, some people uh, come to Jesus in faith. We've seen that, right? We've seen that some people come to Jesus in faith, and they respond to him in the way that they ought to. So, for example, we have uh, the woman with the issue of the chronic bleeding last week in Mark chapter 5. She comes to Jesus in faith, and she receives healing. Or you have Jairus who comes to Jesus on behalf of his daughter who's sick and at the point of death. And once again, you receive, uh, uh, they, he receives Jesus in faith. But other times, people react to Jesus without any faith at all. In fact, they straight up reject him. And these are like those seeds in the parable of the sower from chapter 4, those seeds that hit the hard ground and nothing happens. The birds just devour them. So in the reading today, Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, not the place he was born, but the place he grew up. And at first, things seem to be going great. As he teaches in the synagogue, people are amazed, minds blown. Look at verse 2. 
Many people who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? But then the mood changes. Did you catch that in the text? The mood changes in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter and the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And it says that they took offense at him. Mark tells us that they are offended by his profession. He's a guy who works with his hands, not an educated elite with the right credentials. They're offended by his family. Joseph was almost certainly dead at this point. But even when the father was dead, in Jesus' day, sons were almost always identified as the son of their father. And so the fact that Jesus is called Jesus the son of Mary and not Jesus the son of Joseph may have been a straight-up insult, a way of saying, yeah, we don't know who the father is. It's the son of Mary. They're also offended by their familiarity with him. Of course, you know that familiarity breeds what? contempt, right? They saw him grow up. They didn't think that he was all that special, and they wanted a bigger, better, more impressive Messiah, and so they were offended by him. Now, today I want to focus on that word offense, as in they took offense at him, because Mark uses a very specific Greek word uh, that connects to a key theme in both the Old and the New Testament. It's the Greek word scandalizomai, and you might have heard in there an English word, the word scandal. It's where we get that word scandal, to be offended by something. That word, it means not just taking offense at someone or something, but it actually carries the idea of tripping over someone or something, stumbling over something. So we see in Isaiah chapter 8, 700-some years before uh, Jesus uh, spoke, this is what Isaiah speaks by the Spirit of God. He says in Isaiah chapter 8, And he, the Lord, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. Isaiah was saying to the people of his day that the Lord will always be for us either a sanctuary a temple, a place of refuge and rest, or the Lord will be for us a stone that we trip over, something that we might even curse, just as people tripped over Jesus and cursed Him in Nazareth. Or in Romans chapter 9, Paul is wrestling with this reality that Jesus is for some a rock of refuge and for others a rock of stumbling. He's reflecting on how many of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish Greeks and Romans that he preached to, many of them heard the gospel and they believed. They received Jesus as their very cornerstone that they built their life upon. But sadly, and this is what Paul's really wrestling with in Romans 9, is the fact that many of his own country people, many of the people of Israel rejected Jesus and they stumbled over him. And so as Paul's reflecting on this, as he's wrestling with it, he quotes Isaiah 8. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, while Jesus has caused some people to stand forever, others have tripped over him. In fact, Paul uses a word in that text 
a word that comes from the same word that we heard in Mark 6.3. Mark tells us they took offense at Jesus. They tripped over him. And Paul, quoting Isaiah, says also, using the same word, that they tripped over the rock of offense. The point is this, is that some people come to Jesus Christ and experience Him as a rock of refuge, the very foundation they build their life upon, but others experience Him as the rock that they trip over. And what I want you to see today is that this rejection of Jesus, this stumbling over Him in Nazareth was not an isolated incident that just happened once. In fact, it's a major theme in the New Testament, and it's something that we see even today, even in the church. As the Gospel of Mark continues, as we continue to read it this summer and into the fall, we'll see that, yes, some respond to Jesus in faith, even if that faith is weak and not entirely secure. Even if people say, I believe, help my unbelief, people come to Jesus in faith. But we're also going to see that as the chapters of Mark progress, we'll see that the tension is building, resistance is growing, more and more people will stumble over Jesus, especially the religious and political leaders of Jerusalem, the scribes, the elders, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Rather than coming to Jesus in desperate need and humble faith, they will stumble over Him again and again until they eventually take this stone of offense and they throw it away like trash. Kind of like, you know, if you've got a, like a landscaping rock like in your yard from the previous owners of your house and you just keep running into it with your lawnmower, you very well might just take it, throw it in the pickup truck and dump it, right? Just get rid of it. And that's exactly what would happen with Jesus. At one point in Mark 12, when the tension is mounting with those who are stumbling over him, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. At the very point that they are decisively stumbling over him, to the point that they plan to arrest him, Jesus speaks these words to them from Psalm 118, 22 and 23. Jesus says to them, have you ever read this? You ever read the scripture before, guys? Have you read that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's talking about himself. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The very stone that the builders stumbled over and rejected is the cornerstone of our salvation, our rock and our refuge, Jesus Christ himself. And who would have thought that as they arrested him, as they mocked him, as they spit on him, as they beat him, as they rejected him, as they handed him over to the Romans to die the shameful death of crucifixion, who would have thought that this rejected stone would be the cornerstone of our salvation and also the cornerstone of all human history? Who would have known that our rejection of him would mean our acceptance eternally, and that our judgment upon Him would mean our eternal release and forgiveness. It's beautiful. However, as beautiful and liberating as the gospel of Jesus Christ is, we continue to see that people still experience Jesus as either a rock of refuge or a rock of stumbling and offense. He is the most divisive figure in human history. After years and years of preaching the gospel to both Jews and to Gentiles, uh, this is what Paul says. Paul's reflecting on his experience as a preacher, um, 
And he says this, he says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, there's that word, right? A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. Once again, we encounter that phrase, the stumbling block. It's that stone of offense we've been talking about thus far. In fact, Paul uses the same word that Mark used when he says that people in Nazareth took offense at him or were scandalized by him. You see, the Jewish people that Paul preached to, his own countrymen, they wanted a Messiah who would show up with a great, powerful sign, a display of power. They wanted him to kick out the Romans and put Israel back up on top again, but Jesus did none of those things. Paul instead preached to Jesus who submitted to the shame and the mockery of the cross. And most people who heard the message encountered that cross as a stumbling block, a stone of offense, and not as a source of salvation. But some people, Paul included, after a lot of resistance, right, some people, Paul included, came to embrace that cross as a refuge, as a sanctuary, as their very cornerstone. The Greeks that Paul preached to, they wanted high-level, sophisticated wisdom. They wanted a TED Talk that would make sense to the intellectual elite of the day. But then Paul preached the message of the cross to a culture where even talk of crucifixion was taboo because the event was so shameful. Most people stumbled over that message. They called it utter foolishness. For example, in Acts chapter 17, Paul preaches to the philosophers at Athens. This would have been like preaching to the woke humanities department at an elite university on one of the coasts. A few recognized the cross as God's wisdom, but most of the crowd called it foolishness. In fact, they stumbled over the cross. You see, the cross has always been wisdom to some and foolishness to others. It's always been power to some and weakness to others. Jesus Christ has always been and continues to be either the cornerstone that we build our entire lives upon or the stumbling stone that we trip over. He can't be in the middle. He's either one. And this being the case, I offer to you, church, a word of warning and also a word of comfort. The warning is this. You know, I've seen it time and time again that even people within the church will stumble over Jesus Christ. Sometimes we may have just selected inspirational quotes of Jesus, and that's what we know of his words, like the Hobby Lobby poster kind of stuff, right? That's, and we know those things about Jesus, but we haven't read every red letter, right? We haven't read everything there is to know about Jesus. And so sometimes when we encounter the real Jesus on his own terms, we can be offended. When we encounter a Jesus who makes us uncomfortable, who messes with us a little bit, who actually asks us to change our opinion on something, a Jesus who asks us to, to live in a way that's costly, right? We may encounter that Jesus and say, I, I don't want that Jesus. Um, so entertain a thought experiment with me. What if 
Jesus Christ in the flesh showed up and he preached not at the synagogue in Nazareth, but right here in this pulpit at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Kearney, Nebraska. I go take a seat, Jesus fills the pulpit. What would that look like? You know, Jesus has this way of being extremely comforting and also extremely unsettling all at the same time. You felt that, right? as you read the words of Jesus. If he were to preach from this pulpit, would you come to him in your great need and would you find him to be a rock of refuge, the cornerstone upon which you build your life, or would you maybe stumble over him? Because many professing Christians in the church will stumble over the true and the genuine words of Jesus. So what if Jesus stood in this pulpit and he said to you, you need to pick. It's either me or sports on Sundays. You cannot serve God in sports on Sundays. What if he said that? And what if he actually drew a line and he made you stand on one side or the other, him or the sports? What if he, what if he made you choose? What if he said, I'm, we're not going to wait for the season to be over. What if he made you choose? What if he drew a hard line that made you choose between being a successful athlete or a faithful Christian? Would you drop the ball, the bat, the glove, and say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Or maybe you would stumble over him. Maybe you would say, you know, I was okay with you, Jesus, until you said that. But you messed with my priorities. What if Jesus stood in the pulpit and he said, I love all people. I am the friend of sinners. I am the one who came to seek and to save the lost. I seek out and I love the one who is excluded and struggling. But I didn't celebrate Pride Month and I never will. What if he stood before you and said, I celebrate people, I celebrate individuals created in the image of God, and I celebrate repentance, and I celebrate people being connected with me, but there are some things I don't celebrate. What, how would you respond to that, perhaps? Would you, like the tax collector in the parable, say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or even, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief? Or would you stumble over the words of Jesus? Would you even maybe redefine your entire faith to get away from his words? Would you have the humility to hear Jesus out, both his law and his love? Or would you cancel Jesus or consign him to the wrong side of history? What if Jesus stood in this pulpit on this very day, the 4th of July, and he said, America isn't my favorite. The church is my favorite my chosen people from every nation, tribe, and language. What if he said on this day, my people, my church, I command you to pray for your country and to show respect for your leaders and to be good citizens and to be thankful for freedom. But remember that I have not come to make America great. I have come to make my name great, the name of Christ, and my church great and eternal. What if he said this to you and then he didn't apologize? If anything that I have just spoken from this pulpit offends you, I want you to be careful. This is a critical moment, perhaps, for you. If your blood pressure's up, if your heart rate's up, if you're like, 
that offends me, right? If, if you're in that place right now, this is a critical moment for you because you very well may be stumbling over Jesus. So I want you to be aware of that. You may be stumbling over the real Jesus, not the buffet Jesus. And by that I mean the Jesus we say, I like that, I like that, I like that, don't like that. You may be stumbling over Jesus. But for those who are here today who feel their great need and who know without a doubt that they are real sinners, who can't get their life together, even if their life depended upon it, who, who say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, I offer this word of comfort, and it's this. You know, most people in Nazareth rejected Jesus that day. Jesus marveled at their lack of faith, and he didn't do many miracles there that day. But there were a few people who must have had faith that day because the text tells us that he did lay his hands on a few people and healed them. Just like when Paul preached in Athens in Acts 17, most of the people rejected everything that Paul had to say, but a few did believe. Most in Nazareth stumbled over Jesus, but a few had faith. Most who heard Paul preach in Athens stumbled over the cross, but a few believed. And the few who were healed and the few who believed, they may seem kind of small and pathetic for us, but the healing and the salvation that those few received was not experienced by them as small or pathetic. It was experienced as life-changing, right? For those few people, what Jesus did for them was absolutely precious. I mean, if the woman with the chronic bleeding from last week's gospel reading was the only single person healed by Jesus on his visit to her town, would that single miracle lessen the absolute joy and relief that she felt? Even if everybody else rejected Jesus, her life would still never be the the same, right? Her life was changed forever. In fact, she owed her life to Jesus. Or what about those few people who believed the gospel in Athens? for whom Jesus became their eternal rock of refuge. Even if most of the crowd stumbled over Jesus that day, the few who did believe had their lives changed for eternity. In Acts 17, we hear these words. Now, when they heard of the resurrection, this is the the crowd in Athens, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, He leaves, sort of like Jesus left Nazareth. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Out of that crowd that stumbled over Jesus, we get the names of two people for whom the name of Jesus would be precious forever, Dionysius and Damaris. You see, the truth is that you and I in the church, you and I are part of the few. We are part of those who have heard the words of Jesus and come to Him and know Him as our rock, our refuge, our sanctuary, our cornerstone. And even though we often feel like we are just few in comparison to the world, you are precious to Jesus, few though you be. More and more, you and I will experience rejection by the world. We will feel odd and awkward and misunderstood as Christians. But you and I are precious to Jesus, even if we are few rather than the many in the society in which we live. 
As we close today, I want you to listen very carefully to these beautiful words from 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, Peter was writing to a group of Christians who were the oddball few among the many who rejected uh, Jesus Christ wholesale. They, they felt weird in their culture because they embraced faith in Christ. They were mocked, they were mistreated, they were misunderstood, they were slandered. But This is what Peter writes to this rejected small group of Christians. It's a good chunk of text, so bear with me, but I think you'll see a lot of these themes we've been talking about coming together beautifully. So this is what Peter says. He says, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Jesus Christ was rejected, right? But he's now the cornerstone of all history, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is far more famous than any work of art or literature or movie that was once rejected and is now praised. And even his critics will not be able to ignore his fame when he returns to make all things new. And as his people in this age, we may feel more and more like we are the few and we are the rejected and we are... Uh, misunderstood, but we know the same is true of our Savior, and we also know that we are precious stones purchased with the blood of Jesus, built into a holy temple, a temple that will last forever, built upon Jesus as our foundation. He may not matter much to the world, but he's precious to us. You are even more precious to him. <laughs>